It's like, well, have you ever tried to strike a deal with God? You follow me? Like, God, if you do this, then I'm gonna do, then I'll do this, right? Has that been effective for you? Or God, if you if you want me to do this, or if you want me to talk to so and so, you're gonna have to make it happen. You're gonna have to put them in front of me. You're gonna have to help me run into them, and then all of a sudden you find yourself what running into that person, right? Or tell you what, God, I sense that you really want me to do something, uh, to do this, whatever it may be, but you're going to have to make it super clear for me. Like, I'm not going to do it unless you really want me to, and then you walk outside and, like, literally a pig flies by, and then, you know, there's dancing and, like, fireworks going off, and you're like, nah, not a big enough sign, right? And then we, and then we walk away from it. For me, it's actually a pretty good parenting technique. Right? Bribery is another thing to call it. Like, if you do this, then I will do this for you, you know? Or, uh, it, it, and it oftentimes is a technique that we use with God, right? God, man, if you do this for me, uh, or if you act this way, then, man, from this day forward, that's it. I'm, I'm, all, I'm on board. I'm on board. I'm following you. And so this morning... Uh, and, and this morning, we're going to look at a story that the saying, fleecing God, comes from. Now, that's not going to be our focus, really. But if, if you've ever fleeced God or fleece, you fleece someone, if you've heard that, contact, that context before, that's a biblical context. And it's the idea of trying to get somebody to do something uh, because, you know, and asking them to do something for you so you would do something in return. And today, as we continue this flawed series... We're going to look at, uh, we've been looking at Hebrews 11. We've been looking at the 20 or so names in Hebrews 11. I think we're on our fifth one now uh, of people who, uh, by faith, did amazing things uh, with God. But as you can tell, the title of the series has been Flawed. And so the presence of what we've been looking at is how these people that God used, that made this list in Hebrews 11, this hall of faith, this hall of fame of of believers who by faith did amazing things were all flawed. They all had their flaws. And today we're going to look at uh, a character in the Bible, Gideon. And if you don't know Gideon's story, part of Gideon's story, we're going to look at most of Gideon's story this morning. But part of his story is that he fleeced God, right? That he, he had that wet and dry fleece out on the, uh, on the ground. And he asked God to do it one way and make the fleece wet and the ground dry. And we'll, we'll look briefly at that when we get into it. But he fleeced God. So we're going to actually look at, how does that work? Like, is that a good concept? Like, did we learn something from Gideon in the way he acted? Or, or is this maybe off limits for how we deal with God? And so uh, out of these many stories in the Bible, my hope is that we will actually look at this story of Gideon and we will, um, we will hopefully learn something from him. Much like we want to learn from each other in our lives and the things that we go through, my hope, my prayer is for us to learn something from the story of Gideon that we can adapt to our lives, right? Not that we just read and learn about this guy who did these things with God and then we walk away unchanged, that we would actually adapt and, uh, and establish some change based on uh, this Hebrews 11. And then in, in, in Judges 6, 7, and 8 is, is the story of Gideon. We could learn from this uh, text. You ready? You guys awake? 
One, two, three. All right. So uh, what I want to do first is I want to set the stage. I want to set the stage much like I did last week for for Moses, but I want to set the stage for Gideon to get us to where we're at now. Now, last week, you know, we, we looked at the story of Moses, if you were here. If not, we looked how uh, Moses led his people and that he had his flaws of, of doubt and uncertainty and not being qualified, but yet God still used him. We actually see, we'll see some similarities in Gideon's story as well, but we won't focus on those as we learned that lesson, hopefully, last week. But Moses dies and if you don't know the story, Moses dies and doesn't get to lead his people into the promised land. Joshua does. So Joshua takes over, leads his people into the promised land. And then just after that, just after God led his people into the land of milk and honey, which is abundance uh, overflowing in, in this land that he had promised to them, we see this cycle start with God's people, a cycle that isn't too healthy where God uh, has delivered his people in some way, and this is a cycle that repeats itself in Judges, specifically at the beginning. God delivers his people into the promised land, and then he asks, he, God simply asks him, now just keep my commands, uh, and if you keep my commands, you'll continue to be blessed, but if you don't keep my commands, the Ten Commandments, the decrees, um, I'm gonna cause the nations around you, the people around you that are gathered around you to take you over to uh, suppress and, and, and rule over uh, you as people. And that cycle starts of God blessing people, God, God's blessing then for the people uh, goes away, they don't keep their commands, they become disobedient, a curse falls on them, uh, the enemy takes over them by force, uh, and then finally get to the point where uh, God's people cry cry out to him again. God then in this cycle raises up what's called the judges or these people to rule in, in that situation to bring uh, the Israelites back to good standing with God, thus getting blessed, thus starting the cycle again of being disobedience after the blessing and it just continues itself in judges, right? Starting, starting in like chapter four or five, it starts. And so as we look at this cycle today, uh, it's kind of summed up in most all of these cycles in Judges is summed up by two different verses in the book of Judges, I think, really well. Judges 17.6 and Judges 21.25 where it says, of the people, of the Israelites who are entering into this cycle of blessing, disobedience, curse, you know, crying out, it says of this, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It says that of the Israelites in Judges 17.6 and 21.5, two different times it talks about how they did what was right in their eyes, not in God's eyes. So um, the Lord seemed to not have as much authority over his people as he thought. The kings that he had rose up at that time through these cycles of Judges obviously didn't have the authority that, that uh, God had hoped they would have and they would continue to fall into this cycle. And about three or four cycles in, we see Gideon. So starting in Judges 6, we see uh, uh, Israel has fallen into what it says, uh, the, the Lord of seven years gave them into the hands of the Midianite because the power of the Midianite oppressed, was oppressive on them because uh, they had done evil in the sight of the Lord is the comment that's made at the beginning of each of these cycles. And so the Midianites had come in and, and drove out the Israelites. And actually, Scripture tells us in those first 11 verses that 
they drove the Israelites into the hillside. In the hillside, they made caves and caverns and camped out, basically just ran away from their land that God had given them and were in hiding. I think of it like a big bully, right? The Midianites come in and, you know, steal your lunch money and, and take all your toys, and then they push you out of your bedroom, out of your house, and then all of a sudden you're in running or you're uh, in, in hiding from them. And then in, 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 and we see this character enter in. God's going to call Gideon uh, into this story to lead his people. But if we look at these first 11 verses in Judges, we see that Gideon actually isn't much of a leader. Gideon, when the, Lord, when the angel of the Lord comes to them, which in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is actually, uh, it's Jesus' image right then, because Jesus was uh, there at the beginning in creation. Uh, he was there with God in, when creation. So he's, he's in the Old Testament, even though he wasn't physically born yet, and he makes an appearance as the angel of the Lord to talk to Gideon. And when he appears to Gideon, Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press. So if you... Uh, how many of you have ever made wine in a wine press? Probably nobody. How many of you have ever threshed wheat? Okay, nobody. Good. You're, you're, I'm right there with you. I had no idea what that meant, right? And so how it works is, is in threshing wheat, uh, you throw the wheat up and the chaff falls off and then the, the wheat kernels fall to the ground and that's what you use. So you want to do it in a windy place, right? Not inside a wine press at the base of a hill because the wine press would be down off the bottom of the hill, they'd bring the grapes down under the wine press from the hillside where they had grown them, and they would, you know, stomp on them in the wine press, and then the wine would come out, and then you'd have your wine. So, but in this instance, Gideon, they're in hiding, mind you, right? They're hiding from the Midianites who they say at harvest time would come in. Scripture tells us in those first 11 verses, they would come in and take everything. They would take the wheat grain, and they would take the grapes, they would take everything from them. So in a sense, Gideon's threshing wheat in the wine press so that the Midianites wouldn't come and t steal it from him, that they wouldn't come and take his lunch money, right? And so we find Gideon in hiding, in secrecy, threshing wheat in the worst place that you could be threshing wheat in, uh, in, in hiding, and not only that, we see in Scripture that Gideon, when the angel of the Lord appears to him and, t and talks to him, Gideon says, you know what? I'm actually the weakest, my tribe is the weakest, and I'm actually the weakest of my tribe, of my people. And so you must have the wrong person. But God and the Lord being who they are, uh, in Judges 6, 12, uh, the angel of the Lord said to Gideon, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. So little Gideon, I'm, I'm, I mean, he might be big, I don't know. Uh, in a wine press, threshing wheat, uh, and God comes to him and calls him a mighty warrior, the weakest of the tribe and the weakest in his tribe, according to him, and God is calling him mighty warrior. And getting himself doesn't seem to think that he is a mighty warrior. And so kind of set the groundwork for what we're going to talk about today is, is just this. God sees you for who you are created to be. So in Gideon's case, he's driven out of the land, he's in hiding in the hills, he's threshing wheat in the wrong places, but God still sees him for who he will become. The judge 
in this case, that will lead the Israelites back to right standing with God. Lead God's people back to obedience and blessing and everything. And I want you to hear that this morning. Is that God sees you for who you were created to be. I don't know what you're facing this morning or what you brought with you. And we'll look at what Gideon brought with him and we'll look how God works with him. But I want you to know that, that God sees you for who he created you to be. Now, Gideon struggles with this uh, in understanding what God uh, sees in him. Uh, God tells Gideon that he is a mighty warrior and what he's going to do. Uh, and while he's appearing, I mean, he, uh, he, um, he wants to show Gideon and tell him, exactly what he has for him. So I'm going to ask for you to have a show of hands here. How many of you know and have complete confidence in who and how God created you to be? Complete 100 confidence. Oh, that's good. That's good. I don't know that I even understand that yet, but, but that's something that we, I think we struggle with, right? To have complete confidence. I know without a doubt that, that God has created me for this, and I'm going to do it. I think we continue to wrestle with this over time uh, and often with God, and sometimes it changes. But in this case, I don't think Gideon has a clue. But God's going to show it to him. And, and, and I would encourage you with this. God wants to show you who you were created to be as well and what the calling is that he has for you on your life. Judges 6, 17 through 18 says this. Gideon replied from this mighty warrior. He says, if I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that you're really talking to me. Please don't go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said it that, fine, I'll wait until you return. I love that the Lord has shown up to Gideon in this first moment, and Gideon still is like, well, I don't know. He calls him mighty warrior, but Gideon's like, well, if you find favor uh, in me, then, then uh, wait here, uh, and I'm going to come back with my offering. And so Gideon is saying here, man, uh, you know, seriously, I'm, I'm, I'm going to need more than just you calling me a mighty warrior if you're going to want me to do this. You're going to have to really spell it out for me. At this point, God's already shown up, and in a real sense, uh, started this act of what we'll look at of God building Gideon up for what he has planned for him, a place where God created him for. Uh, Judges 6.19 uh, is, is this first offering. Uh, Gideon goes away and pulls back this offering. This is how I know uh, that God can barbecue really well. Um, Gideon comes back with his meat and uh, some broth and, and, and his offering, and God sears the steak perfectly, right? I know that there'll be ribeyes in heaven, uh, so I'm excited to taste God's barbecue, but this is the first act of this, and, and he takes the offering and sears it up right in front of Gideon. So that's the first, well, really kind of the second, God showing up and saying, mighty warrior. Second time he shows up, does this barbecue trick uh, with Gideon. Uh, and, and so God tests Gideon and is beginning to prepare him over and over, right? Uh, and, and, and now this is huge because uh, the next thing that God asks him to do is something that's a little scary. And when I read it, uh, I was like, man, this is pretty big. So God shows up to Gideon again in this story and says, you know what I want you to do? I want you to take your dad's uh, 
most prized possession at this time. His dad was leading, his, leading the people as well. I want, to take, I want you to take your dad's most prized possession, and I want you to destroy them. Dad's in the room. Are there things that your kids aren't allowed to touch that are yours? There are, right? My dad actually had a Stingray Corvette in the garage. T-tops in there. I wasn't allowed even close to it. At one time, it was, they were fiberglass. Like these Corvettes were made out of fiberglass. At one time, we threw a ball and it cracked the fiberglass. Ooh, that was trouble, right? For me at my house, I have, a, I have a little bit of a man cave downstairs and I have some sports memorabilia. My kids are not allowed to throw balls in that room, right? And they do. I see the marks on the TV. Um, but there's things that you just, I mean, you don't mess some, I mean, depending on your dad, you don't mess with your dad's stuff all the time. Well, he shows up and, and, and he says this to Gideon of his dad's stuff. Uh, Judges 6, 25 through 26. Uh, That same night, the Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one that's seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. So this was an idolistic worship that was going on with their God, Baal. And in in this, uh, this is what the people at that time were beginning to worship, more so than God. And so uh, he says, you know, uh, take it down, uh, take down the pole, uh, let's, let's sacrifice the, uh, the bull, build a proper altar, uh, the kind of altar the, for the Lord your God on the top of this height, using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, then offer the second bull as a burnt offering. Can you imagine how upset that dad would have been? My dad would have been upset with me if I would have taken anything of his and, and destroyed it. And I tell you what, I would have let my kids know if they destroyed anything of my stuff. And so God asked Gideon to do this. And, 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 and Gideon does, right? It says that uh, Gideon, uh, you know, he, he, he's kind of testing God and God's still building his confidence in him. And it says, Scripture actually tells us that Gideon does this at night with some of his buddies because he's worried about what his dad would do and the people would do to him. And sure enough, the people wake up that next morning and, uh, and say, man, that's it. They find out Gideon did it, and they're like, Gideon's got to die. Like, he's, he's done, right? We're going to kill him. And his dad, this is how we know Gideon's got a pretty cool dad. His dad simply says, and actually, maybe we know that maybe his dad has a heart for the Lord. But his dad says, you know what? Let, let, our, let the God that we worship, this idolistic God that we worship, take care of himself. If it's offensive to this God that we're worshiping, then he'll take care of it. You know, it's, it's nothing on Gideon. Uh, and, and, and then thus beginning Gideon calling his people back to the Lord. Um, but it says they awoke that morning and wanted him dead. And in this moment, we see that God is continuing. He's preparing Gideon for greatness. And for you, I want you to hear that God is preparing you for his greatness. God is preparing you for his greatness. Now, I struggled with this. I wanted to put up there that God is preparing you for greatness. But I think deep down inside of us, uh, we struggle with our own greatness of how great we are. Right? And so even the idea of leaving his greatness out of it, I was thinking, you know what? I would struggle with that because ultimately I want to be great. Like, I want to be known. And so, uh, in this moment, uh, Gideon's working with him. And, and for us, I look at, 
I look at for us when we when we get to this point of 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 success in 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 God blessing us, how often do we focus on the ability for us to look good, for us to be great? See, hopefully for us, we've gotten to the point, uh, gotten worked through the point of doubting, doubting God. I think it's something that we 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 continue to work through. Uh, we learned about that with Moses last week, and we see Gideon getting through some of his doubts with him. God asking him to do stuff for the most part and, and, and him doing it, even if it's a little reluctantly or after a few conversations. Uh, I feel Gideon's kind of testing God, but God's showing up and, and really trying to prepare him. But really, what is it that God is preparing Gideon for? And what is it that, 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 um, that God is preparing you for? Uh, verse 34, it picks up again. Then the Spirit of the Lord came to Gideon. He blew a trumpet, summoning the Ab- Abyssalites to follow him. And then he sent his messenger throughout. He sent his messenger, uh, messenger throughout the land uh, to gather more of an army. Uh, at this point, from the Asher and, the, and Zebulun and Nevtali, uh, so that they uh, went up to meet with him. And so uh, at this point, God's shown up, God's shown him, he's been doing what God's done, and then we see uh, a point where everything shifts. God had asked at this point of Gideon to do everything to this point, but now Gideon takes it into his own hands. Gideon acts without being requested upon from God and starts to bring and build up this army. Unprovoked, really, from God. And Gideon blows this trumpet and all these people gather. And then this is where Gideon does that fleecing trick. Like he says, you know, one last check-in with God before we hit the battlefield. God, if you want me to do this, I want the fleece to be wet and the ground to be uh, dry which is actually something that would happen anyways. A fleece would hold water more than the ground would. So, I mean, I think that that's not. So I think Gideon maybe recognizes that and goes, you know what, actually, let's reverse that. So the next night he says, I want the fleece to be dry and I want the ground to be wet. And then I'll know. And then I'll know that you want me to go and do this. And God shows Gideon one last time that, hey, I mean, this is like the fifth sign that God's shown to him. And, and, and we see that Gideon's ready to lead this army into battle. And if we really look at the story of Gideon's life, we have this same guy. We have this Gideon who was threshing wheat in a wine press, the weakest tribe of the weakest of that tribe. And now we see this duration of God building him up. And he's about to lead this pretty substantial army to take out the very strong Midianites. I mean, that's a big transformation that God has worked in his life. To go from where he was at the base of this hill to leading an army of what we know is like 32,000 people into battle. God has rose up and prepared Gideon for this moment. But is it God's moment or is it Gideon's moment? Starting in chapter 7, verse 1 and 2, early in the morning, uh, Jerubbaal, and this is, it's Gideon 2, this is a name of like to challenge Baal, the other god that they had, and so that's why they changed the name there, but it is Gideon. 
and all his men camped at the spring of Herod in the camp of the Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moray. Uh, and the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or the Israelites will boast against me. My own strength has saved me. And so Gideon's built this, taken into his own hands, I think, built this bit massive army, and now the Lord's saying, you know, I, I, I can't do it. Not I won't do it, I can't do it right now. And God begins, and what God does is he whittles down Gideon's army. Uh, first they ask, if anybody's fear or trembling, you guys can take off and go. And at that point, I think 22,000 or 20,000 take off and go. And then he, then he, if you remember, this is the funny story of the Bible. I'm like, really, this is how you do it? But 10,000 of them go down to the water and he separates them out even more. Those who would draw water with their hands and drinks or those that would just bend over and lap up the water. Micah would have lapped up the water, my son. Uh, and so he would have made the 300. Uh, I would have used a cup, I don't know. So I would have been out. Um, now, this is a little more speculation for me and what I've read and studied this week. But I think maybe got a, Gideon got out ahead of God on this. I believe uh, God wasn't thinking what Gideon was thinking when God called him to deliver his people um, and, and take charge of his people. Uh, if you remember, this was really a lesson for the Israelites, right? As these cycles and judges go through, I know it's not God's plan for, these, uh, for his people to go through these cycles and not learn anything on the other end. Even though they repeated themselves over and over and over, I think there's lessons in each of them for God to work in. And it's no different now that I think there's a lesson in this story of Gideon's life for us to learn from. These cycles of crying out and crying back to God and Gideon, he doesn't want his people to not be changed on the other end. And I think we often battle uh, the same sort of cycle in our lives, right? Reading and studying this week in the stories of Hebrews 11 and all the people in there and Gideon's story, uh, I look at, man, what might we learn from this? And for Gideon, if you remember, he was the weakest uh, and rising up to a leader, leader, and this was Gideon's greatest accomplishment in his life. This moment that God had called him and that he had ushered in an army of 32,000 people, this is Gideon's greatest moment in his life. Because there's no Hollywood ending to Gideon's story. Actually, if we look at it... Um, Gideon goes on to lead God's people for 40 years until they fall, fall into another cycle of disobedience. And Gideon himself, at the end of that 40 years, falls victim to idol worship of gathering gold and riches and making an ephod out of it, an idol out of it. But it seems like at the height of his accomplishment, God recognizes that this flaw that is in Gideon, and maybe you can relate to it as I have related to it, this flaw of stealing credit or taking recognition or elevating my own strength and my own ability. For the cycle of the judges and in Gideon's life, it plays a huge part. Gideon's greatest accomplishment was not going to display God's strength. 
it was going to, it was going to display the people's strength. Right? If we look back at that verse, it would say that the Israelites would boast against me, my own strength has saved me. And so I want to ask you this question this morning. And the question is this, what is the greatest thing you have going on in your life right now? What is your greatest accomplishment you have going on in your life right now? Is it that you're financially stable? Is it your job? Uh, Is it your family, your home, the way you play, like the fun that you have in life? Is it your friends? What is it? What is, what is the greatest thing you have going for you? What is your biggest accomplishment in your life right now? And how much credit are you taking for it? If what came to mind, I would say, well, how'd you get that? Would your answer be, well, it was a lot of hard work. Schooling and a lot of saving on my part, a lot of, uh, you know, prioritizing my life. Or would it be God? Would the answer simply be, man, I don't know. God's put me in the position I'm in. What is your greatest accomplishment? Because I think here's the cycle that we happen to fall into way too much in our lives. Right? The, the cycle of God uh, blessing us, God working in our lives, doing amazing things. And maybe you can relate to it. Maybe you've recognized in some of your cases that God has worked in uh, his, he's worked a lot in your life, that he's done some amazing things. But we tend to leave God back at camp. We tend to, to, to uh, let him take a, a back seat to what we're doing. We leave God in our shadow. Right? We step out in front of him and, you know, and pause. Oh, man, I got this now. I mean, that's our human cycle. Like we've got everything going for us and everything's going great. And, and I'm like, man, I did it. I did it. I'm there. And God's behind us. Maybe you've been through some hard stuff and, and, and you've come out of it and you've worked really hard for it. I would still think, man, God's brought you where you're at. God's put you where you're at. We step out in front only to eclipse whatever God is doing in our lives. To take credit for it ourselves. By our desire of recognition or fame or accomplishment that we've worked really hard for. God's glory shall not rest in our shadow. It's not the right place for it. It may sound harsh to you. Maybe because you haven't fully understand, and I think I'm still fully understanding the intent of what God wants to do. But it's not God's desire for you to be known. That's not his desire. And that's kind of hard to swallow. Like, because I want to be known. I want to, to be recognized for what I'm doing. But it's not God's desire for us to be known. In Hebrews 11 and in Gideon's story and all the stories written in, these, in, in, in the names of these people that we're looking at in Hebrews 11, none of those stories in, in man, stop me if, I'm, if, if I teach it in any other way than God be lifted up and, and these people be uh, subject to what God has done in them. 
All the people in these stories of Hebrews 11 are that way. And Gideon's army was ready to conquer and take the credit. When you look at the greatest thing you have going on in your life, I bet if you're honest with yourself, most of the time you want to take credit for it. When really it isn't for you. It's for God's renown. How great is that greatest thing that you have accomplished? If it isn't for God to be known, then it ain't that great. Honestly. The greatest, how, how is the greatest accomplishment or thing you have going for you right now making God known? Whatever it is that came to mind, whether it's your kids, whether it's your finances, whether it's your house, whether it's your life in general, how is it making God known? It isn't about making me look good. That's just stepping out in front of God. I cannot deliver the Midianites into their hands or Israel will boast against me. My own strength has saved me. In Isaiah 48, 11, God says, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. In a different translation, it says, for, the, for my sake alone, I will act. For how, I can allow, how can I allow my name to be defiled I will not share my glory with anyone else. And that might sound to you selfish on God's part. But if you know the God that is created in everything, that desires a relationship with you, this is actually not a selfish statement at all. This is a glorious statement. I uh, came to know the Lord at 18, and I immediately jumped into the passion uh, conference uh, thing that was going on. This was like Louis Giglio and a bunch of these worship leaders and they were gathering and they had this generation called Generation 268 was their little tag. I think it's even still their tag today. But it comes out of another verse in Isaiah and it says this. Yes, Lord, walking in the way of your laws, we wait for you. Your name be renowned, uh, be renowned are the desires of our heart. Your name and renown are the desires of our heart. Church, that's what I want for us. That's what I desire for you personally in your life. And I hope that you would desire the same thing. If we do that personally, then as a church, we do that in an amazing way. And we can do much more. I and mean, we're less than 300, but I know God's got big plans for us. And I want to be a part of that. Not for my glory, not for my recognition, not for, my, for me to be known, but for him to be known. Let's pray.